Backstage, opening night, big show, everyone has something they use to channel their energies. Some people pace, others sing. One woman goes into a series of downward-facing dog poses. Me, I have a lamp. A small golden lamp, I keep it in my pocket and rub it just before stage time to unleash the genie. Call me crazy if you want to, but there is magic afoot. We get to be bigger, funnier, bolder, sexier, and tasting that, even if just for a moment, helps ease the pain of running away from whom we really are. Today, from WNYC and NPR, Snap Judgment proudly presents The Performers. Amazing stories from the people who bear their souls. My name is Ben Washington. Lights, camera, action. Because you're listening. You're listening. Snap Judgment. Today, we're traveling down to the borderlands to meet one of the hardest working men to ever wear a mask. Snappers, I proudly present to you, Cassandra! Lucha Libre is very um, alive. You get there, the ring is there, the chairs are there, music is going, cumbias and salsa. And the mascaras are, are, are passing by to be sold. All of a sudden, lights go down, and music gets up, and the smoke comes out, and it's Lucha Libre time. And then the people just scream their lungs out. For Lucha Libre Mexicana, for the most part, there's no, no, no predetermined, like, you're going to lose or you're going to win. Uh, everything is decided in the ring. I'm going to win because of my talent, or I'm going to lose because I don't have the talent. Just like in the U.S., where we've got The Rock and Hulk Hogan, luchadores have stage personas. La Ser, El Hijo del Santo, La Pantera Rosa, The Pink Panther. Cassandra was the best wrestler in his gym, but he still didn't know who he was in the ring. When I became a wrestler, I started like everybody else with the mascara with a mask and uh and my trunk and my little wrestling boots and that was it that was all your gear and but i knew that i didn't feel comfortable i didn't like it i was like yeah it feels good but this is not me and then when pimpinela came aboard she's like yeah i've been there so we related a lot i just met pimpinela into that juarez at the gym Pimpinela was very, very skinny, and he, he, he's super tall. And um, uh, you can tell he was from a low-budget family. He was struggling. And I was like, oh, this is a new one, new one on the block. And then, it, and then Pimpinela would say, like, oh, who do, you, who do you think you are? We never got along so good until we, after we started wrestling each other and kicking each other's butts. And that's how we just became like big, big sisters. You would have known just by seeing us or hearing us or that we were uh, 
we had a di uh, different sexual identity. Uh, I was training in the gym, and one of the old timers, he was very famous from here, came and, and they were looking for an exotico in the biggest company that Ciudad Juarez had at that moment, 1988. And they, guess who they picked? They picked me. Exoticos is like a, um, it, it, it's like a flamboyant uh, wrestler. Uh, not necessarily an exotico has to be gay because there has been a lot of exoticos that are not gay, that are bisexual, or that are, that are even transsexuals. They were like the clowns of the circus, and that's what I didn't want. I didn't want to become a clown of the circus. I didn't want to become one that the people laughed at me. I want to become one that people applaud and recognize my talent in the ring. Cassandra wanted to be a champion. He also knew that Mexico's three-time world champion, Elijo del Santo, had said publicly that he wouldn't wrestle exoticos. Elijo del Santo has said that he wanted no nothing to do with an exotico because one time Rudy Reina had the nerve to try and kiss him in the ring. So if he took the company's offer, he might never get to one of those big arenas. But this was his only choice join the company and wrestle as an exotico, or don't wrestle with the company. You know that every luchador's dream is to wrestle in the big arenas and with the big companies. And that was my calling. So I just said, okay, with a lot, I was very scared, very nervous, because I was gonna be an exotico. After the recruiter approached Cassandro, he and Pimpinella decided to move to Mexico City. Moving meant bigger matches and better opponents, but they weren't going to get anywhere without a look. The other exoticos weren't able to use makeup, no pantyhose, no bathing suits. They were just used like trunks or singlets. And when we got together and we talked about it, we said, what do you want to wear? I said, bring the feathers and the glitter and... Let's just bling bling ourselves a little bit more and we'll take it from there. If we're going to be exoticos, let's do this revolution. Let's go all out. We're gay and let's just be true to ourselves and let's see how the audience and the promoters and everybody else looks at us. I was hit harder. I was pushed down harder, and I was slapped harder, and I was spit on my face more times. I think that I had to do double the work that any normal male human luchador would do. Because first, I'm already labeled and tagged as a homosexual. Normally, the good guys are the ones that do all the great stuff, the flying, the, the, the suicide topes and everything. We're not just jesters. We have this talent. We like to walk in the ropes and fly outside the ropes and inside the ropes and, and do all these rolls and, gymna and gymnastics stuff. And then word got around that I was good, that I was um, respectful, that I was disciplined. And then it took less than a year. Then the company said, we're going to give you an opportunity with El Hijo del Santo for the championship belt. Yeah, 
that Elijo, the same legendary luchador who said he'd never wrestle an exotico. The promoter handpicked Cassandro from a sea of newbie wrestlers to take on the three-time world champion. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm getting a big chance with El Hijo del Santo, the biggest legend of Mexico. And here I am, an exotico from Ciudad Juarez. The match was going to be January 28th, 1991. You know, in Mexico, the biggest uh, sport after soccer is Lucha Libre. So we had the press. And, and for the most part, a lot of them were like against me. Like, why would he do the championship match with El Hijo del Santo? Why can't they pick somebody else? And I was like, well, there's a freaking reason why they cho- chose me. And I'm going to show you if you just let me do that match. El Hijo del Santo never responded to the negative press. Some fans and reporters were calling for him to cancel the match. But he stayed silent. That all got to me because it was a very happy moment in my career, but in my emotional and in my life, then I started like not believing in me and putting doubt on myself. One week before the match, Cassandro and Pimpinela went out to see a few Lucha Libre matches at the biggest arena in Mexico City. When they got to the stadium, the press ambushed Cassandro. The, the question was like, do you think you're fit for the, for the match? And they would scream stuff like that. And, and I think I, I tried to put the best face that I could and I didn't say nothing. And um, when I got home in the bathroom, I don't know what, what triggered it or what happened, but I just knew that something was not feeling right. And when I stand up, there was a window right in front of me and there was a razor right there. And I don't know what triggered it or how, how it happened. It just one of those things that just happened. I wrote, I, I, um, put my arm up, got the razor, put it in my mouth, cracked it open, got the knives out, and started cutting my wrist on my um, left hand. And I continued to cutting my wrist on my right hand. And it was like a slow process for me because I still... (laughs) I'm remembering right now just everything, how it happened, and... It, it was just a moment where watching the blood run was okay for me. And Pimpinela came in and he saw me and I was already sitting in the floor uh, with my hands bleeding. And he came in and got me and just um, carried me on to the living room. We called... Um, the doctor and you know they fixed me but I had some bandages on my wrist and so I had to wear long sleeves and I didn't like it and, and I didn't want nobody to know of course but you know it, the, the work was gonna get around and um, so I decided like you know what you're already down get up pick yourself up and go forward do it the fight was on a Thursday and it was a uh, in, in the Arena Pista Arena Revolución in Mexico City, 8 p.m. 
and going to the arena was just like boy. And when I walked in the dressing room, I remember I was like, I was shaking. And I had taken Pimpinela with me because I said, Pimpinela wasn't going to wrestle that night. But I said, Pimpi, you got to go with me. Come on, you got to go with me. You got to be at my corner. You got to be my second. And, and he's like, all right, I'll do it. And he said, look, you're going to be okay. Do the best that you can. Don't let the people or the nervous get you. Here, take a sip of this tequila and it will help you. And then all of a sudden they go, okay, you guys, we're ready for you. And they go, Cassandro. And there we go. Cassandro el Exotico is the Liberace of the Lucha Libre, La Diva del Ring. Once they put that song on, I will survive. Ladies and gentlemen, Cassandro. And the doors open. That's my moment. I, I, I come, I walk out with my big long tail gown and people are like, wow, look at this guy. And I have my makeup and the glitter and the bling bling and I'll do that catwalk. We start our match and and that's the time that you have to put every all your knowledge to work. So we start wrestling. Like doing one move after the other one, and then the people were just like, oh wow, that is very pretty. And then I would shine, he would shine, and we started doing our moves, and that's how you get the recognition, because that's how you're telling them, see, I, I, I know how to wrestle. This is, this is how I defend myself. In Mexico, uh, normally matches are three falls. And um, I picked them up on the third rope and put them on my shoulders and put them on a hold. I won the first fall, and then he won the second fall with a tope and I think the tapatia. When I would go to my corner, Pupimpi would throw, uh, would do air with a towel for me, and I hear the reaction of the people, which is very important because those are the ones that keep you going. And then the third match, the third fall, is when everything goes to the oven like you gotta throw everything you know there but you're already tired though it just came to a moment where i couldn't go any more further but i knew i had done enough like to prove myself and i was like okay and once he pulled me on his um caballo on a hole that he's called it's like a horse uh, i was i was done i was done I could, my back was done and I just tap out. And that was it. And then everybody was kissing my after that. All the reporters, they were dumping on me. They were all like, oh my God, that was great. Good job and all this. And I'm like, wow, are you serious? I felt good. I knew that I had done enough work to be recognized and to shut the mouth of all those guys that were trying to be the joy killers. Cassandra went on to have an amazing career. 
Uh, so I went from wrestling El Hijo del Santo in 91 and uh, winning the championship to winning it later on months after that match in November 29th of, in Toluca uh, versus Lasser. And I get I get crowned as the first Exotico to be the world uh, lightweight champion. And everybody was happy and La La Land was for me. He became one of Mexico's most beloved luchadors. After two decades of professional wrestling, he was a cultural icon. The Louvre called Cassandra up in 2009 and asked him to reenact one of his favorite matches for Paris Fashion Week. He could pick any opponent he wanted. Cassandra looked back on 20 years of fighting, of fame, and he picked this match, his first fight with El Hijo del Santo. And we do our matches. Everything went well. So the next day, we we had three days off. And then I told him, like, hey, let's go to the Eiffel Tower. Let's go hang out. Let's have a talk. And he's like, yeah, let's go. And we were tired and went to have a cup of coffee. And I popped the question. <laughs> I'm like, hey, I'm curious. So how was it that you agreed to wrestle an Exotico for the championship match? And he's like, what? I'm like, yeah. I'm curious. How how did all this happen? He's like, you know what? Mr. Minus came and talked to me and he said, there's this wrestler. He's very talented. Would you give him a chance for the championship belt? And he's like, well, yeah, of course. Why not? And then they told him who it was, and it was me. And they said, well, Cassandro, he's from Juarez, but he's an exotico. And he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, 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 no. So he said, so when they told me that it was you, I went to some of the events where you were fighting, and I don't know, something was different from you. And I liked your rhythm, and, 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 and it looked like you have talent. It, I knew you were too new for me, but then I said yes. And then when we fought, um, I knew I wanted to wrestle you. And it was very beautiful. And then he goes, how did you feel about it? I said, no, you don't even know what I went through about it. He's like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And then I said, I almost died before the match. He was like, what? Yeah. I started showing him my wrists. He's like, what, Cassandrito? What happened to you? And you know what? We got to talk about it. And and then we just hugged and embraced each other. And he said, God, I didn't knew you went through all this stuff just for a championship match. I said, it wasn't for a championship match. It was for my opportunity to come, to show off and thank you because, because of that match. I know and I believe that my career took a hike and it's been the most beautiful thing. Thank you, Cassandra, for sharing your story with us on The Snap. Now, Cassandra's got a lot of exciting things in the work, Snapper. She's got a book coming out, a documentary. Get in on this goodness. For all things Cassandra, visit us at snapjudgment.org. The sound design for that piece was done by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Eliza Smith.
When Snap Judgment returns, we take it all off. All of it. And Dave Chappelle's other half, when the performance episode continues, stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the performance episode. Today, we're exploring the magic behind the stagecraft. And for our next story, I'm super excited for you to hear it. It's from Snap Judgment Live. And you know, we save you the very best seat in the house. And please know, this story does address matters of a sexual nature. Sensitive listeners should be advised. Get ready for Snap Judgment Live. She is the founder of the TMI storytelling event. Put your hands together for Gina Gold. I'm 10 years old. There's a pimp that lives in my building, and I hate him. And somebody needs to do something about it. He thinks that nobody knows that he's a pimp, but I can hear him yelling at his prostitutes, beating them up, and I'm gonna take action. Because I have been watching this TV show called The Secrets of Isis. And Isis is a low-budget superhero, and she fights local crime. So I decide I'm going to be Isis, and I'm going to save the prostitutes. So I devise a plan. I'm going to take a picture of the pimp in action. And then I'm gonna send the photo to the New York Times. And then they're gonna put it on the front page with a caption that says, there's a pimp in 5G. (laughs) And that's gonna set the prostitutes free and I'll be Captain Save-A-Ho. Grab a camera and I wait till I hear the pimp out on the payphone. And I run out onto my terrace and I say, Hey, pimp! And he looks up and I snap the photo. Then I duck down like a spy and I crawl back into the apartment. And that night, there's a knock on the door. So I get out of bed and I peep around the corner and I see my mom opening the door to a very angry pimp. And he's got a prostitute on either side. And I think, "Uh uh-oh, I don't think my plan worked. And then he immediately starts in and he says, bitch. Your daughter took a picture of me, and I want it back. 
Bitch, your bitch-ass daughter shouldn't be taking photos of me. I want it back right now, or my bitches are gonna hold you down and beat your ass. Bitch. And I was like, oh no, I'm not ISIS at all. And now my mother's gonna get her ass whooped by a pimp. And then my mother, she pops herself up from five foot three to six foot eight. (laughs) And she stood there in a red Afro wig and daishiki. And she said, I don't know what you're talking about, but take your hat, take your friends here, turn around, and get the hell away from my door. And don't you ever refer to my daughter as a bitch ever again. As a matter of fact, don't even look at her. And she got that like exorcist thing going in her voice. She said, don't even look at her. (laughs) And the pimp wasn't expecting it, so he kind of jumped back. And then he tried to save face by saying, yeah, well, don't let me have to come up here again. And my mother said, get the hell away from my door. And then she slams the door and she turns around and my shoulders go up. I'm like, oh my God, this is gonna be really bad. And my mother looks at me and she says, don't take pictures of pimps. (laughs) So when I got older, that pimp was just one in an assortment of creeps. I I was constantly being harassed by men all the time, and I never did anything about it. And by the time I got in my early 20s, I was tired of it. So I packed my bags, I moved to California, and I decided that I was going to take a little bit of that power back. So, I put on my go-go boots, a long black wig, and some false eyelashes, and I took my place on the stage at the Lusty Lady in San Francisco. My fellow dancers, Insertia, Velveeta, Cheese Whiz, and Lotta Latex. And I, behind glass, finally felt the power and control that I always wanted. And I watched their desperate eyes following me. And they were looking at me. And as I teased them, I felt myself getting more and more powerful. Behind that glass, who's in control now? 
But then, when my shift was over and I wasn't behind glass anymore, I was no longer in control. That night, I went home from my shift and I got on the BART train and this tall white man got on the BART train with me. And he locked eyes with me and he wouldn't look away. And I was scared because we were the only two on the BART train. And when I got off in Berkeley, he got off. And I walked through the BART station and he was right behind me. And when I came out, it was really dark in the parking lot. So I tried to lose him in between the cars. So I'm walking, I'm weaving in and out of the cars, and I look and I see that he's right behind me. So I break into a run and I start to run for the stairs. And I think if I can make it to the top of the stairs, maybe he won't be able to get to me. And I get to the top of the stairs, but then I see he is right on my heels. And just then, a carload of young black men come by and they say, get the hell away from her. And he runs away. So the next day, I march into the lusty lady and I say to Pat, the manager, look, Pat, um, I really need to work day shifts from now on because someone followed me from the BART station. And she said, okay, calm down, Isis. Now, <laughs> what did you do when he followed you? And I said, I didn't do anything. I don't have any control over people following me. And Pat said, of course you have control. As a matter of fact, I want you to practice. You're behind glass. Customers are not allowed to direct the show. So if a customer comes in and he says, let me see your ass, I want you to say this very important line. So I lean in like Luke Skywalker and she's Yoda because I'm thinking, oh, she's really gonna drop some science right now and give me some advice. And I wait for the line. And she says, this is not Burger King. You can't get it your way. That's the line? She said, yes. I said, okay, well, I guess I'll give that a try. So I went on stage and I'm waiting and I'm waiting for an opportunity for someone to come in so I can try out this line. And I was working a six hour shift and nobody came in and finally at the end of six hours, I was standing there like this. And this man comes in and he says, turn around. And I said, <clears throat> this is not McDonald's. You think you can get a Happy Meal with that? The window slams down. I felt a little more confident. And then a minute later, happens again. A man comes in and he says, yo, yo, turn around. And I said, this is not Burger King. You, you, you can't get it any way that you might want it that might work for you. <laughs> and he apologized. And I thought, wow, okay, maybe I can try this 
out on the street. So that night, I walk up and down Market Street. <laughs> and it was just one creep after another. And I just blasting them like ISIS. And I say, what? I don't care if you didn't order the double Whopper, okay? Chicken McNuggets come in six, nine, and 12 pieces, okay? Gordita Crunch, I don't think so. Wait your turn. And finally, the man that was always harassed me, even pinching me on the ass sometime, I said, this is not Burger King, okay? And no, we are not bringing back the McRib. Oh my God, I was sticking up for myself. I had a voice, I had done it. I was so excited to go into the Lusty Lady and tell Pat what I had done. And when I got there, she was gone without a trace. No explanation of what happened to her. And Pat was replaced by Vivian. And Vivian was mean. The first thing she did was to get rid of the sign in the lobby that said, please do not direct the show. She even got rid of the tampon bar. Then she fired Octopussy and polyester. And then she called me into her office and she said, Isis, you are here to please the customers, okay? They're not here to please you. I'm really glad that you're a busty but you're also a woman of color. And I cannot have four women of color on the stage at one time. I'm not racist, okay? It's just the way it is. And also, I wanna state that you're overweight by about 10 pounds, and you need to lose it, and I'm suspending you, but I'd like you to not lose it in your breasts. <laughs> Close the door on your way out. I was pissed. I could not believe she said that to me. I walked into the undressing room and I see <laughs> Cheese Whiz is sitting there crying, looking in the mirror and I said, what's the matter? She said, Vivian said one of my breasts was higher than the other. And I said, oh, that is it. I am going to do something about this right now. I'm going to make Vivian disappear. She's going to be gone. And Cheeseman said, wait, what does that mean? And I said, don't worry about it. It's the curse of ISIS. Just know that she's going to be gone. And I walked out and I went on the slim fast plan and I lost one, two, and then after five pounds, I said, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. I look fine the way I am. I look great even.
I cannot do this. So I go back to the lusty lady. No sooner did I get there, I'm walking down the hall, and Cheese Whiz comes running over. Oh my God, oh my God, Isis, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, you did it, oh my God. What, what are you talking about? And she said, Vivian is being arrested. She was caught embezzling. Can you believe that? Come with me. So I walk with her, and we go into Vivian's office, and Vivian is crying. She's got mascara running down her face. She's got an eyelash stuck to one cheek. <laughs> and a police officer on either side. And I was like, oh, oh. And she starts walking towards me, like dead man walking. And I say, hey, pimp. And she looks over at me and I say, um, this is not Burger King. You will never get it your way. Thank you. Gina Gold, ladies and gentlemen, see this amazing performance for yourself in Technicolor Magic. Go to Snap Judgment's Facebook page. It's right there. And when Snap returns, he made one of the most popular shows ever. But what made him? Find out. When the Snap Judgment performance episode continues, stay tuned. WNYC, welcome back to Snap, the performer's episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and you've seen the magic on stage, on TV, on film, at the concerts. We all want to know where it comes from. What are they tapping into? And our next guest, Neil Brennan, he's a writer, director, comic. Neil is best known as the co-creator of The Chappelle Show, but he strips away all of his veneer in his new one-man show, Three Mics. We bring him into the studio to speak with Lena Masitsis. Snap judgment. Yeah. Um, Manoli, we're good on levels, right? Okay, great. First of all, this is for snap judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we're trying to pull off. Okay. We have tape of you doing the show at Largo, and then we. Do you probably... want me to? You want me to tell the dad story though, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, okay. So we're going to actually cut between you telling me the story and then a couple um, stand-up segments from that the actual great. tape. Yeah. So, do you mind just setting up for me what, like, first of all, what the premise of the show is and how you arrived to it? Yes. Um, my name is Neil Brennan. I am a comedian. The premise of the show is that I put three microphones on stage, seven feet apart, and I basically alternate between the three microphones. How are you? You good? All right, so I don't know if you know the premise of the show. Uh, It's three mics. Um, This one is for like one-liners, just jokes I've written over the years, couldn't find a place for them, maybe I tweeted a couple of them. Um, But, so yeah, for an example, when someone says I think of you as family, I assume they're gonna scream at me for something that happened 15 years ago. (laughs) It's kinda hard. 
I'm not a one-liner comedian, so I basically I spend the most time to the right and at the stand-up mic. Gold diggers. Do they exist? What do you think? They exist? Not as much as you think. You know how I know? I'm a little bit gold. Yeah, men assume that there's going to be, like, a gold-digging system in place. Like, every accomplishment by men in human history was to impress women. I'm sure, like, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, and they were like, Edison, this is going to change the world. And he was thinking, like, and wait till these hoes see it. (laughs) This mic is for personal, true stories. Like, it's not going to be hilarious. I'll pepper them with with jokes, so (laughs) just be ready for that. So, uh, so I'm depressed. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, but not like written. No, it's not funny depressed. It's like, it's clinical. You know, I have, I've had it as long as I can remember, like from when I was a little kid. Um, I'm, I don't know if you know anything about me. I'm the youngest of 10 kids. Yeah, I don't know if you know anything about uh, kids. Um, <laughs> or math, but that's too many kids. <laughs> it was like growing up in a juvenile detention center, pretty much. Yeah, and uh, my father was a, a violent alcoholic. You know, that's the, my parents are old. Like, they're from, they literally born in the Depression. You know what I mean? But look, my father was from really hard scrabble surroundings. Born in 1930. He was one of 13 kids. Immigrant parents from Ireland. His twin died when he was six months old. And at a certain point, they put my father up for an adoption. So a family came and took him for a test drive and then brought him back. Just insane. So, so yeah, so he was violent alcoholic, and he, but he was also, even kind of worse, was a narcissist. Um, and I don't know if you've dealt with narcissists before in Hollywood. I don't know if they have them out here. Um, <laughs> but it's all about them. You're not even there. I don't mention this in the show, he was, all right, a couple anecdotes. He was diagnosed as a clinical narcissist. And uh, so you know what he did? He called us all individually to tell us that he was a clinical narcissist. One by one. Yes. <laughs> Another time I broke my arm and uh, needed to go to the hospital. How old were you? Ten. And my dad uh, ate dinner before he took me to the hospital. No. So I just had to sit there. And with a broken arm. I think I was 20, maybe, when I wrote for um, All That on Nickelodeon. I'll hold for applause. Um, and then me and Dave Chappelle wrote Half-Baked, and that was good. So, but these were, like, good things where, like, it's not a good movie. But um, these were good things. Like, they felt good, you know? Like, it was, I was kind of staying ahead of the depression. Um, and that worked for a while. And, and then uh, Half-Baked came out. Um, and it's kind of a rude awakening. Um, CNN said that Dave's career was over, and his mom saw that, so that was pretty rough. I think the New York Times said, shame on Dave and Jim. Pretty, pretty scathing. But my father was such a narcissist that he was, like, mad at me for it. Like, I'd somehow made him look bad. And I even asked him. I was like, you weren't proud that your son got a movie made? And had his name on a movie screen. He's like, no, not really. It's like, okay. <laughs> but anyway, so I started. I started. Uh, I knew I was sort of like had to make a change because I think we sold a pitch 
and I was driving up La Brea, and I heard about the pitch, and I was just like, I was numb, and I started crying because I was numb. And I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm no longer staying ahead of it. I was like, I got to go on antidepressants. So, um, and I would still come across to people because of the depression. I would still come across as cold, or indifferent, or uh, you know, bored, or just bummed. Um, but you know who liked it? Black dudes. Black dudes loved it. <laughs> I'll tell you why, because they'd be like, they'd be like, Neil, man, you don't give a fuck. And I wanted to be like, it's because I'm sad. <laughs> and then Chappelle's show took off, and he, my dad basically came back like Don King, like, only in America. Um, but I was like, no, I'm good. I basically said, I don't, I don't like you. I don't think you're a good person. And said, you can't lord your money over me like you do my brothers and sisters, because that was sort of his thing. <laughs> then he started getting sick. He had leukemia. And everyone told me, you know, you got to make it right. You got to make it right. So I took their advice and I wrote him an email itemizing all the things that I didn't appreciate about him or about our relationship. And also a bunch of things that I did appreciate and I and I didn't hear back from him. And then and and then, I think nine months after I sent the email, I got a voicemail from him, and he sounded super reedy voiced and sick. And he said, "Hey, it's me. I read. I never checked that email address. I just checked it, and saw your email. And I got to say, pretty fair. So we so I called him and we talked and 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 uh, we there was rapport." He said something about cancer. He said, you know, everyone says I'm fighting cancer. I'm not fighting it. Like, I'm, it's, I, it's ravaging me. And I said, you know, I was like, Dad, you know, Christopher Hitchens said that same exact quote. And he was like, oh, I, I love Christopher Hitchens. I was like, he's like, I love that book, God is Not Great. And I was like, so, like, we kind of connected over that, for instance. And we spoke a few few more times after that, and... Then he started, and then I got a call from my sister, and she said, it's not looking good. You should come to Chicago and say goodbye. So I went to Chicago, hopeful that things were on the mend. Were you sad, scared? Were you other things, too? You More than anything, I was always curious as to how I was going to react. I would see people's parents or friends or family members die, and they'd be devastated. And I always be like... I don't think I'm going to be devastated. But there's also a good chance I will be devastated at the fact that I never got to have a good relationship with him. So I went to Chicago and hung on his hospital room. And I got, and within five minutes, he was, like, trying to get me to talk shit about my brothers. And I was like, God, man, like, just be a decent person. Like, it's, you're, like, home free. Just be decent for the next three days. Um <laughs> Because I was going to pull the plug. Okay. Um, and I just, it just it was a reminder. Like, oh, he's just, a, he's just like a, he's a scorpion. So a couple of days later, I was, I was getting ready to leave. And my sister called me. And she's like, hey, did you tell dad you didn't want to be in his will? And I was like, uh, probably not. You know, what? <laughs> I was like, let me guess. I'm not in it. And she's like, yeah, you're not in it. I was like, okay. She's like, but we, we're going to get a lawyer down here. He wants to change it. You'll be good. So... 
I go down to the hospital room, and he's like, Neil, do you remember, you know, telling me to take my money and shove it up my ass? And I was like, I wouldn't say something that hacky, but yeah, I remember the, <laughs> the sentiment for sure. And uh, so we sat there in a bit of a standoff, you know, because he wanted me to grovel. And I was like, I'm not going to grovel for money. Like, I'd rather you give me money than not, but I, I'm, I can't grovel for it. And, um, and we kind of left it open, and he fell asleep. He basically just, like, put my hand on his forehead and say goodbye for what would be the last time. He died a few days later. And the following week, I got an email on my phone, and it said, the will of Daniel J. Brennan. And so I opened it, and I'm scrolling through it, and it said, my son Joe gets one-tenth, my daughter Sheila gets one-tenth, on and on, and it got to me. And it said, my son Neil can take care of himself. He gets nothing. It was a shot. It was painful. It was It was just a flick in the back of the ear. Like, if you're so great, then you're not getting any of this. When, when things had thawed between us, I was talking to him on the phone one day, and I said, you know, Dad, I feel like you didn't love us. And he was like, yeah, you're right, I didn't. Which is awful, but it was actually good because my whole life I felt like, I don't think my dad loves me. And everyone would go, oh, no, of course he does. If he loves me. I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Like, Because, you know, love's elemental. You can sense it. It's heat or wind or getting tickled, you know. So for my father to say, I don't love you, was both devastating and liberating because it meant I have clinical depression, but I wasn't crazy. Thank you, Neil Brennan. Neil's show, Three Mics. You can see it for yourself on Netflix right now. We'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Lena Masitsis and Mark Ristich. It's about that time. But if you missed even a moment, subscribe to the amazing Snap Judgment Storytelling Podcast on whatever phone device thing you have. Snap was produced by all the sorcerers in all the lands. Wave your wand at Mark Ristich, Pat Masidi Miller, Anna Sussman, Joe Rosenberg, Nancy Lopez, Davey Kim, Renzo Gorio, our Get Fresh crew, Eliza Smith, Leon Morimoto, Teo DeCott, and Jasmine Aguilera. And this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could sneak up on a New York pimp, flash a camera all up in his face, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.